You're listening to the Restless Wanderer podcast by Paul Coulter, and this is part six of a series in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter four, verse 12. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We'll pause our reading after verse 17 of Matthew chapter 4. Now this uh, is the next stage, if you like, in the story of Matthew's gospel. We've seen Matthew's account of the uh, the birth narrative of Jesus in chapters 1 and 2, and particularly the role of Joseph there in saving Jesus by taking him into Egypt and then bringing him out of Egypt. And of course, we saw that that has a parallel with the story of the nation of Israel, where Joseph, uh, the son of Jacob, in the Old Testament in Genesis, did the same, rescued God's people by taking them into Egypt and preserving them there. And this Joseph, also a son of a man called Jacob, who is the husband of Mary, uh, does the same, rescuing Jesus. And then Jesus, uh, of course, grows up in between, but he comes to John the Baptist, as we saw in the last episode, and or the previous the, the episode before the last, uh, in chapter three, and is baptized by him. Uh, and then he goes into the desert, as we saw in the last episode at the beginning of chapter four, to be tempted by the devil. And this again follows the pattern of the story of Israel. So just as they were brought out of Egypt, then they also were taken through the water of the Red Sea. Jesus is taken through the water of baptism, the Jordan River. Uh, and then tested in the desert for 40 years and 40 nights in the case of Israel and failed that test in the case of Jesus for 40 days and 40 nights. And he uh, was victorious in that temptation. He was faithful, sinless. And now Jesus begins his public ministry. And uh, Matthew leaves us in no doubt that Jesus' ministry is the fulfilment of Old Testament prophecy. Jesus begins his ministry in uh, Galilee, where he had grown up. We saw that uh, his family went to live in Nazareth. Uh, and uh, of course, for a time, he was in Judea, where John was based and John was baptizing. That's where uh, Jesus was baptized. And uh, they had some time together in that place. Then John is arrested and Jesus withdraws to Galilee. And he goes and lives in Capernaum by the sea. Capernaum becomes the base for his ministry um, and that's in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali and of course um, that's where the connection with Isaiah chapter 9 comes in. Verses by the way in Isaiah 9 that might be very familiar if you are uh, accustomed to being at churches around Christmas time. It's one of the readings that is often read because uh, as that chapter continues in its most famous verses, verses six and seven, it talks about a child who is going to be born, a son who will be given, who will have the government on his shoulders and who will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and who will reign on David's throne forever. 
So um, that prophecy is uh, what Matthew is pointing to. He's saying that this person who has come is the fulfillment of that hope of that light to Zebulun and Naphtali and in Galilee of the Gentiles. And there's this sense as well that Jesus' mission is going to go beyond Israel. Those living in the land of the shadow of darkness have seen a great light. The light has dawned on them. It's a beautiful passage, a beautiful prophecy of hope for the future of Israel and of hope in a place where the Jewish people were mixed together with Gentiles, as they were in the time of Jesus in that region of Galilee. It's one of the reasons that Galilee was looked on with a bit of suspicion by the Jews in Judea. So the main centres of Jewish population were in the south around Jerusalem in Judea uh, and then in Galilee. But the Judean Jews often felt that the Galilean Jews were more mixed up with the, the Gentiles, more influenced by the Gentiles, a little bit dodgy, if you like. Uh, so there was both a sense of looking down on them, living further away from Jerusalem, and also sensing that they were more influenced by the Gentiles. But that's where the light of God is shining. That's where the one who will establish David's throne, as Isaiah 9, 7 puts it, will establish his ministry. And what is it that Jesus preaches? Well, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, that's how we know that Matthew is not simply saying that Jesus fulfills Isaiah 9, 1 and 2 by doing some ministry in Galilee. But that actually Matthew understands that Jesus' ministry is the fulfillment of that whole prophecy that leads right down to verse 7 that talks about the kingdom that will be established, uh, the kingdom of David and establishing, it says in Isaiah 9, 7, with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. There will be no end of the greatness of his government and peace. Jesus comes to declare the kingdom. Now, we need to be very clear about what that means, because this is often talked about in, in, in very vague terms. Some people talk about Jesus proclaiming the kingdom and they say, well, Jesus was really a great ethical teacher who was calling uh, Jewish people to live more fully by what God expected. Uh, and that's really what Jesus is teaching us to bring about the kingdom of God and the way we treat one another, love each other, uh, treat each other well. And that's bringing in the kingdom of God. Now, it is certainly true, and we'll see this as we get into Jesus' teaching, that his teaching has ethical implications for his followers. There is an expectation of how people in the kingdom live. But at the same time, Jesus makes it very clear that people are not automatically members of the kingdom. And we don't get to be in the kingdom by living the way of the kingdom. The kingdom is not something that we bring about by our effort. It is something that God brings about. He brings it about by his action and particularly through the son, the child who was born, the Lord Jesus, who is God himself incarnate. So the kingdom is not something we can build or expand or extend. It's something that God creates. And Jesus tells us in Matthew 5 that to enter the kingdom, to see the kingdom, to be part of the kingdom, we have to be humble. And, and we'll see that when we come to it. In Matthew 18, he talks about entering the kingdom as well. But in Matthew 5, it's blessed are the meek in spirit for theirs is the, or the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the kingdom is not something we make and build. It is something we receive from God. It is something we enter into. Uh, and it is something that 
uh, is, is calls us to to live under God's rule. Again, the kingdom has a king. And that means that work that we do, even if it is good, you see, if you think the kingdom is just about us loving each other, you might say, well, that person who isn't even a Christian is very loving and kind to other people and acts justly. So that's kingdom work. But no, the kingdom has a king. And the citizens of the kingdom are people who gladly acknowledge the king. And their deeds of righteousness are a response to the reality of his reign. They do them not for their own glory, but for his. So the kingdom has a king. The kingdom must be entered. And it is the kingdom of heaven. That's reminding us again that it comes from above. Other gospels talk about the kingdom of God. And that seems to be synonymous with this phrase kingdom of heaven, which Matthew prefers uh, quite possibly, I think probably because Matthew is writing with a Jewish audience in mind. And Jewish people um, were reluctant to say the name of God uh, because they didn't want to blaspheme to use his name in vain. So Matthew might be changing that uh, in order to um, uh, fit into the conventions of that time. But where a Jewish person said heaven in this way, it was a reference to God. God is the ruler in heaven. This is the kingdom that comes from heaven. It is the kingdom of God that breaks in through Jesus. But we must repent. That kingdom has arrived, Jesus says. It's at hand. It has come near, other translations say. That means not simply that it has, it's at hand in terms of the, the end is nigh, it's coming soon, but it is close to you. Because Jesus has come in his person, the kingdom comes close to people. And what response must they make? They must repent. They must make a change, turn around. That means they have to acknowledge their sin. Just as John called people to baptism for the repentance of sins, so Jesus too takes sin seriously. Now we'll see that Jesus shows wonderful compassion and love to people whose lives are marked by sin. But he never dodges the issue of sin. He never neglects uh, to, to make it clear. Uh, he never fudges it. It's always clear that sin is serious. It must be repented of. Those who recognise their sin must acknowledge it and they must turn away from it to trust in God, to embrace God's rule, the kingdom of heaven. And of course, this kingdom of heaven is a major theme in Jesus' teaching, uh, in the parables particularly, as we'll see when we get further into Matthew. Those parables are, are telling us something about the nature of God's kingdom, God's rule. Uh, you notice I use that phrase, God's rule, interchangeably with God's kingdom. And that's because the kingdom of heaven is not uh, a physical earthly kingdom. It will influence the kingdoms of earth. It should do, as Christians have influence in the world, but it is not um, a kingdom that comes from this world. It is a spiritual reality, first and foremost, and it comes to be seen on this earth in as much as people live as citizens of that kingdom, live with loyalty, first of all, to God, live under his rule. So we'll explore more of that as we carry on into the gospel, but let's read Again in Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, 
casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. We'll pause there after verse 22. Now here is Jesus beginning to call his disciples. Uh, These are the first disciples that we read of in Matthew's Gospel. Whether or not they're the very first disciples that Jesus had, uh, it seems from John's gospel, for example, that uh, this was not the first occasion when Jesus met with at least Andrew and possibly Peter. And there may have been others who were amongst the disciples first. But these four, if you're familiar with the names of the disciples of Jesus, are really right at the core of the group that he's going to form. He's going to call 12 disciples who he will appoint to be apostles. And uh, these four, at least three of them, are in the inner circle, if it's right to call it that. Uh, There are occasions when Jesus draws Simon and James and John aside and, and, and they have a particular insight into what Jesus is doing and what God is doing. So uh, as we read through Matthew, we'll see that on occasions. Of course, Simon, Simon Peter is always named first in the lists of disciples. He's uh, one that Jesus will have a particularly special interaction with later in Matthew's gospel. Uh, and that name Peter that he's known by, most famously known by, Uh, to Christians is a name that Jesus gives to him. In fact, I think it's right to say, but I stand to be corrected, that this may well be a name that Jesus invented, a nickname initially rather than a, a, a common name for boys. Simon is reckoned to have been perhaps the most common name amongst Jewish men at this time. There are many names, of course, in the Gospels, and and some names repeat themselves in the Gospels and the Epistles. We have more than one Jude or Judas, for example, even amongst the disciples. There were two Judases, uh, and then there's also a Jude or Judas, the brother of Jesus. Judas coming from the, the name Judah in the Old Testament, being the Greek form of it. And, of course, there are uh, multiple Josephs in the New Testament as well, uh, and multiple Marys on the on the female side. But Simon seems to have been perhaps the most common, Simon or Simeon. And uh, so Simon, very common name. His father is called Jonah. Uh, so he's known as Simon, son of Jonah or Bar Jonah. And that, of course, is also the same name, John, which one of Jesus, one of these disciples is called. So again, John, Jonah seems to have been a common name in the New Testament times too. Uh, Simon Johnson would be what we would call this man today. And uh, I know at least one person called Simon Johnson in my part of the world. Maybe you do too. Nothing special about that name. But Jesus gives him a special nickname, Peter, which means a stone or a rock. And as we read on into Matthew, we'll see the significance of that name. So Simon Peter, Andrew, uh, that's a Greek name. It comes from the word meaning 
man. Uh, and that tells us again that this region of Galilee was influenced by Greek culture and the Greek language. These are Jews who may be Greek speaking as well as they're probably Greek speaking as well as Hebrew speaking or Aramaic. Aramaic was the dialect that was commonly spoken by Jews at this time. It's related to Hebrew, but there was uh, they're probably Aramaic speakers and Greek speakers. And certainly Andrew's name is Greek. And then we have James and John. These two other brothers, his father is called Zebedee. Two pairs of brothers. That's interesting, isn't it? Because I think it's fair to say that in the modern world, people are quite sensitive to the risks of nepotism and favouritism because of family ties. Rightly so, we should be careful to make sure that blood is not thicker than water when it comes to the work of God in his church. We must make sure that we're accountable and that families do not dominate. But it's very clear from Jesus' example that it's not an absolute barrier uh, to have two brothers serving together in leadership. Jesus was not afraid to have two sets of brothers. Now, when we read on in the Gospels, we'll see that particularly with the sons of Zebedee, these two brothers, that did create some potential problems. Also because of the involvement of their mother, uh, they, they, who had aspirations for her two sons. Um, these two men also seemed to be quite hot-headed at times, and they, they spoke together. But at the same time, Jesus includes them together. Um, when it comes to Peter and Andrew, we don't have any hints of a similar problem. So I say that simply to say, uh, yes, we should be wise and careful about families working together and make sure that others are not left on the outside that there's no unfair favouritism because of family ties or compromise of what is true or right because of family ties. But at the same time, it can be a good and healthy thing for families to serve together. So Jesus chooses these two sets of brothers. All of them are fishermen. Is that significant? Well, um, yes, clearly it's it's interesting to know that he chose fishermen. It's it's likely that fishing was one of the major industries, certainly around the Sea of Galilee, that's true. Um, it, it was a, a, a lake that was rich in fish and that was a, an important industry in that area. Uh, and But of course, Jesus chose other disciples who were not fishermen, but then in his inner circle, they all had been fishermen. But it's hard to know what particularly the significance of that might be. Although Jesus does use this idea of fishing when he calls them, he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. You're not going to catch fish anymore. You will catch people for the kingdom, catch people for Jesus. So there is a change of focus in their lives. It's likely that these two families were what we might today call small businessmen. There are some indications in other passages that they might have had other employees. And so when these brothers leave, it doesn't mean the business shut down. Those people might have carried on the work. Uh, Zebedee, the father of James and John, is still able to work at this point. We don't read about where uh, Jonah, the father of Peter and Andrew, is. Um, but it's not just abandoning the business. And certainly later on, after the death of Jesus, Peter goes back to fishing, which suggests the business was still there. But Peter and Andrew and James and John are going to leave that work and to live with Jesus. So not the first encounter with Jesus. They had met him before, but this is a special calling to leave and follow. 
So the call to follow Jesus as a believer in Jesus, as a disciple, is always a call to leave something. Certainly to leave our sin behind, to leave our independence behind, to leave our loyalty to other gods or other kingdoms behind and to put him first. But it's a calling that is uh, not always, doesn't always mean you'll leave your job or your workplace. It could mean that God might call you to do something quite different with your life, to go somewhere different in the world as part of his mission. But it won't always involve, it's not always that every Christian must leave their work uh, to, to go and serve God, what we might call full time. No, this is a special calling to the 12 that he's going to call as leaders and foundation of the church. So let's read on then the rest of uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. And Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And we'll stop our reading there at the end of Matthew chapter 4. So Jesus calls disciples to himself. We'll see as we get further into Matthew that that is the beginning of a new community that Jesus calls the church founded on these apostles. We've seen that his ministry begins in Galilee, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, um, the region that is in darkness. And now we're seeing something of the nature of his kingdom. We've already seen that he calls people to repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. And now it says he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom, the NIV translates it. I prefer to use the word gospel, the Greek word euangelion, uh, could literally be translated good news. You is good and angelion is news. But the meaning in the time of the Gospels was was not simply just uh, something that was good news. It was used in a more technical sense to describe news of life-changing significance, particularly connected with the change of government, a new ruler. So the most famous use of this word outside the Bible is uh, about the birth of the birthday, celebrating the birthday of Caesar Augustus, um, by whom the good news came. In other words, the, the idea that, that that birth of Augustus and his becoming king or emperor was uh, the something to be celebrated. But of course, that would only be good news to you if you were a supporter of Augustus. Whether you supported him or not, it had life-changing significance. A new king had arrived. And I think that background outside the Bible really helps us to understand the significance of this word gospel as it's used in the Bible. Jesus is proclaiming the announcement, the news, that there is a new king. A new king has arrived. Now, as we 
get further into the New Testament, particularly into the epistles, and Paul particularly uses this word gospel quite a lot, we'll see that the gospel contains more content perhaps than Jesus taught. After all, uh, if I were to teach you the gospel now, based on Romans, for example, I would have to tell you about the death of Jesus and his resurrection. Those would be right at the centre of my message. Those things had not happened yet at the time when Jesus is preaching here. So it's not the full gospel as we might know it today, but it is the same gospel. It's not that it's different. It's just that it, it doesn't contain all of the detail that we can know living this side of the death and resurrection of Jesus. That gospel was a, uh, also contains a command to repent, an invitation to respond. In other words, it's, it's not just good news in the sense of something you hear in the headlines and you say, well, that's nice to know. No, this is, this is good news that requires a response. This is a, a call that says, Jesus is king, will you acknowledge him? In the same sense that when Augustus became emperor, there were parts of the empire that were had been fighting against him. Well, it might take some time for Augustus's rule to be established in those parts of the empire. But as the news spread out that Augustus was emperor, whether those people accepted him or not didn't change that fact. If he was reigning in Rome, he was the emperor. And it was only a matter of time until his rule became effective in those parts of the empire. So people had a choice. Either they accept that there's a new emperor and they uh, they give allegiance to him, or they reject that and stay in rebellion against him. But if Augustus is strong enough, they're going to be in trouble if they do that. That's very much the same with the gospel of the kingdom. It's the message that the king has arrived. You can continue to resist him, you can reject him, but if he is truly the king and if he has true power, then you're going to be in trouble if you do that. And of course, that's true. Jesus has the power and authority. But what is God's kingdom like? What's the nature of the kingdom of the heaven of heaven? Well, that relates to what Jesus does. It says he heals every disease and every affliction among the people. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that Jesus healed absolutely everybody who lived in this region at this time. It doesn't even necessarily mean that he healed everybody who came to him. Uh, the Gospels don't tell us that Jesus healed everyone. In fact, we see uh, that he can only be in one place at once and uh, there are people who are, are healed by him, but that he is able to heal every kind of disease and affliction. There is no disease, no affliction, nothing wrong with the world or with a person that he cannot put right. And that's the nature of God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. When God's rule is effective, then everything is as it should be. God restores lives. The physical healings that Jesus performs are signs of the nature of the kingdom of God. This is what it's like. If human beings had not rebelled against God, this is what it would have been like. This is what it was like before human beings rebelled. This is what it will be like whenever the kingdom of God comes in its fullness. No sickness, no death, no sorrow, no crying. Read Revelation, the very end chapters, to see what that's going to be like. And so here in the ministry of Jesus, we have the kingdom of heaven breaking in. 
people's lives being transformed in the same way that they will be whenever the uh, kingdom comes in fullness, except that when the kingdom comes in fullness, that restoration will be total and permanent. In the miracles of Jesus, it was not so. Someone might have been healed of one disease. It didn't mean that they never had another disease. And of course, it was not permanent. Every person that Jesus healed went on to, to die for some other reason. And so this is not the totality of the kingdom coming. It is a sign that the kingdom has arrived. The kingdom has come near. And Jesus' fame spreads throughout Syria. That's interesting because Syria, of course, is not a region populated by Jews. Syria is to the north and northeast of Israel and of, of, of the region of Galilee. And yet people from those areas bring people to him. The afflictions include diseases, pains, demon oppression, epilepsy, paralysis, and Jesus is able to heal all of these. Whether the sickness is what we might call purely physical or whether it has an element of demonic oppression, uh, when you see the examples of Jesus healing, some of which we'll see in Matthew, you'll see that he had authority over all of these problems. But great crowds follow him from Galilee and the Decapolis, that's interesting, the Decapolis is to the east of the Jordan uh, or uh, east of the Jordan and the Sea of Galilee, the ten cities, Decapolis, ten cities, that's what the name means. And this is a Greek-speaking region. The name itself, Decapolis, is Greek. And so this is a Gentile area. And then also from Jerusalem and Judea and beyond the Jordan. So there are Jews and Gentiles alike coming to Jesus and benefiting from his healing ministry, coming to experience the nature of the kingdom of God. We've seen those signs already in Matthew with the Magi from the East who came to worship Jesus as a baby or young child. We've had the hint of it earlier in this chapter when we saw um, the prophecy of Isaiah, the Galilee of the Gentiles. And now we're seeing the beginning of the reality of that, that God's kingdom will be not only for Jews, but for Gentiles too. That's a, a message that is woven into Matthew's gospel and becomes clearest at the very end when Jesus, after his resurrection, commissions his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. So Jesus' ministry begins with a demonstration of the nature of God's kingdom accompanied with preaching about God's kingdom. That's always good Christian ministry. Show the world what God's kingdom is like. Show them what it looks like in the church as people live together under his rule, in your individual life as you live under God's rule. And do good deeds that reflect the nature of God's kingdom to alleviate suffering and injustice but always seek to combine that with explaining the reason that you're living this way because you are under the authority of Jesus, the King, the Lord. Not because you are a good person, but because he is a great saviour and a great Lord and that they must respond to God's kingdom come near in repentance and in faith. <laughs>